Well, in the famous book and Broadway musical Les Mis, we're introduced to a thief named Jean Valjean. Now, Valjean was imprisoned for 19 years and would be placed on parole. And when he was released from prison, he's homeless. He's got no food, no shelter. He's all alone. Until he met Bishop Merrill. And this man graciously brings Valjean into his humble home, gives him a place to sleep, he feeds him, he clothes him without asking for anything in return. And so that night, the bishop goes to bed. And as soon as he does, Valjean made his move. He grabs all of the precious silver, all of the platters and plates and utensils that he just was eating from a few hours earlier, and he throws them in his satchel, and he's off down the street. Now, soon after, Valjean's caught by the police, and they find all of the silver in his belongings. And then Valjean begins to lie to the police. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's mine, it's actually mine, the, the bishop gave me all the silver. But the police refuse to believe him. No, you're a crook, you're a criminal, we know you. And so they drag him all the way back to the bishop's house. They drag him back there along with the silver. And when the police come to the house, they knock on the door, bishop answers, and then he looks. And he sees Valjean on the ground, beaten, filled with shame. And the police say, is this the man who took your things? Are you missing silver? Is he the one who stole from you? And listen to the bishop's reply. It's staggering. One of my favorite parts of the entire musical. He said, oh yes, I gave him my precious silver. But he left in such a hurry that he forgot to take the most prized possession. He forgot the candlesticks. He forgot the most precious silver in the house. And so in the face of theft, the bishop generously gave the most beautiful and the most costly silver he had in his entire home. And at this moment, Valjean's life is completely flipped upside down. He's overwhelmed by the generosity that has been displayed before him. And listen to what he sheepishly cries. He says, one word from Bishop Merrill and I'd be back beneath the, the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? Is there another way? Oh yes, there is. Not theft, but generosity. In fact, that's the way to go for the Christian. We are to pursue generosity and not theft. But why? Because that's God's call for the believer. And so at the very heart of the eighth commandment, God instructs his people to not pursue theft, but to pursue generosity. And so to not steal is the need to put to death thievery, to treasure the Lord Jesus, and to pursue generosity regarding our work and with regard to giving for God's glory. And so with that in, in mind this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And so if you're using uh, one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find our passage this morning on page 61. And while you turn there, 
feel free to look at your outline and you're going to notice that we have three main points that we're looking at. Number one, the commandment given. Number two, the commandment fulfilled. And number three, the commandment applied. And so first, number one, the commandment given. And so follow along as I read this very short passage, Exodus 20, verse 15. Here it is. You shall not steal. Now, in order for us to see exactly the significance of this command, we must first look at the context. And so just flip with me back some chapters to Exodus 19. It's been a while since we've been there. But it's important to see the context that's surrounding this idea. And so if you remember, Yahweh descended on Mount Sinai to his people. They're in awe. They're trembling in fear of who God is. And in verses 4 through 5, the Lord declares to his people this word. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So in verse 4, God clearly saves. And in verse 5, he demonstrates his desire to sanctify his people, that they would be set apart, that they'd be holy and entirely devoted to him. That's what he's doing in his people's lives. He will save We've seen that already. He will sanctify. And how is he going to sanctify his people? How will he make them holy? Like he's holy? Verse 5. They are to obey his voice. They are to keep his covenant so that they would be his treasured possession. And so what we actually see in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are the practical guide to obeying the Lord, to being holy as he's holy, hating what God hates, loving what he loves. And we see that specifically in verse 15, where the people are clearly commanded to not steal. And so now B, let's look at the content of the Eighth Commandment. And so what's the content of the command? Well, I think it's helpful to see it in two different views. Number one, I want to see it stated negatively. So number one, it looks like not stealing. And then stated positively, number two, it looks like pursuing generosity. And so first, let's look at the command stated negatively. In order to do that, listen to Leviticus chapter 6, 1 through 5. These are instructions to Levitical priests. Listen to what God says. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor through robbery in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So if someone steals... They're to give back what was stolen. That's what God's telling them. You need to give back what you've stolen, and not only that, but then you need to give an additional amount of money to the person that you've stolen against. Yeah, that, that, that stinks, right? That goes from taking to now giving upon giving back. So you've mistreated your neighbor, therefore you need to pay. But to go a step further, Proverbs 30 shows us that stealing is actually uh, a sin that is in opposition to God. Proverbs 30 verse 9 says, Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 
or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So to be poor and steal is directly connected to profaning the very name of God. But what exactly is stealing? Right? I don't want to just assume things this morning. Is it just stealing a cookie from the cookie jar? Or when you hear of the robbery of, of a bank down the street? No. No, it's more than that, even. The Heidelberg Catechism says that God forbids not only outright theft, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, like weighted dice, fraudulent merchandise, like fake concert t-shirts or pirated music or movies, counterfeit money, excessive interest. But listen to this, what it adds at the end. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts that he graciously gives. So check fraud, cheating on your taxes, gambling, taking as many towels from the hotel as you can fit into your luggage. Yep, we've all been there, haven't we? Stealing from your employer, maybe not physically, but lying on your timesheet, taking sick leave where you aren't actually sick, flipping through Instagram rather than diligently working. This is all under the umbrella of theft. And this is where the morale of the room goes, because we realize that once again, Eighth commandment, we fail. We can't keep it on our own, can we? And at its core, this is a direct sin against our fellow brothers and sisters. Why? Because you take from another for your own gain, your own pleasure, your own desire. And in fact, it's a depreciation of image bearers who have worked hard for what they own. But I think the more pressing question for us this morning is why? Why do we steal? Well, the fact is that we tend to fail to believe James 1.5, which says, God gives generously to all without reproach. We have a hard time believing that. Our theft problem highlights an inaccurate view of God. It assumes that God is not a provider. It fends for itself out of a lack of trust in his sovereign power, plan, and position as Lord and his fatherly care. And so, whether we know it or not, in action and attitude, we express that God can't be trusted to provide for me. So one way or another, I'm going to provide. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to enjoy me. I'll take what ought to be mine. Me, me, me. Crave, crave, crave. So how about us? Do we live life as though God isn't the faithful provider of you and your family? Are we quick? And are we often those who are found frantically filling our baskets with manna rather than trusting that God will provide for tomorrow? Is he able to truly satisfy my desires? Now, the Eighth Commandment not only includes the need for us to fight stealing, right? We see it. Not only does it call us to the need to fight stealing from a brother's good and the command, do not steal, but we're called to pursue generosity. This is the positive. 
It, it's a call to no longer take from your brother or sister and devalue them and what they possess, but to creatively and actively look to love others by being quick to give rather than take. To develop a spirit of generosity for your neighbor. And so the command is very clear. I mean, in order to be five words, it's got to be pretty clear for us, right? The command's clear. God will sanctify his people. They will be holy. And holiness looks like mirroring the very person of God. Be generous as your father, the Lord in heaven, is generous. And so stealing includes the physical taking of another's possessions, but it's also a heart that seeks to acquire what they believe God is unequipped to be gracious, to graciously give. And that's exactly what we see regarding Israel as we look into the fulfillment of the command. They look to satisfy their needs and wants rather than trust God to supply their every single need. And so what I want us to do is I want us to see through the sin of both Jacob and Judas how man cannot keep the eighth commandment. So two, the commandment fulfilled. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27, and as you're turning there this morning, it's helpful to remember that Isaac has two sons, fascinating boys, Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis 25, 23, God made a promise to Isaac pertaining to these two boys. And he says this, two nations are in your womb. That's Jacob and Esau. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so as you're turning there, this promise that we see in chapter 25 makes clear that Esau, the older brother, is going to serve this little sneaky snake of a boy, Jacob. In fact, we see this directly in chapter 27. This is first seen with Jacob's deceptive tactics toward Esau in order to gain his brother's birthright. So what does he do? He makes food. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? But Esau's really hungry. He's starving. And Esau asks for the food. He says, hey, brother, can I have some of that food? And Jacob goes, oh, yeah, sure. I'll give you some of this food if you give me your birthright. Oh, what a sneaky little brother. What a pain. You see the thievery right here. He takes what is not his. He steals the birthright because his brother is hungry. He's deceptive. But that's not all. You have the birthright, but then when Isaac, the father, is old, he's like losing his, seat, his sight, he's dying, he asks Esau, the older brother, for some food to bring him, and then he's going to bless him as he's dying. And so Esau agrees to the task, so he goes off to do it, but one problem. Not only do you have a sneaky little brother named Jacob, you have a sneaky mom named Rebecca. And so Rebecca overhears this whole conversation between Esau and Isaac. And so what does, he, what does she do? She runs over to Jacob because she wants Jacob to inherit the blessing. And so she says, hey, Jacob, listen to this. He's going to give the blessing over to your brother. But here, I'm going to help you create a disguise, make food so then you can get the blessing. So Jacob smells like Esau, talks like Esau to the best of his ability. He cooks and is he's even as hairy as Esau. And so Jacob goes to Isaac and listen to their exchange in Genesis 27, 21 through 23. He says, then Isaac said to Jacob, 
please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. So Jacob uses deception to not only steal the birthright from Esau, but then he steals the blessing from his brother Esau. He manipulates his father and looks to accomplish God's purposes on his own terms. He doesn't believe that God will provide what he has promised. He's already given it to Jacob. And he's going into business for himself. And so Jacob steals to obtain what has already been deemed his. And in so doing, Jacob fails to keep the Eighth Commandment. Steals from his brother. Now I wish that I could say that there were no other instances of things like this in the Bible, but that would be telling a different story. And so we see the same problem with a different set of circumstances in the life of Judas. And so I want us to go to Luke 22. But before you even turn there, I want us to see that the Bible and the Gospels paint a specific picture of Judas. John 12, right? Mary is taking this perfume and is drenching it, anointing Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And Judas is astonished by this. You may remember, and he says, how about you stop wasting that perfume and give it to the poor? Right now, here's the interesting thing in the narrative. Did Judas really care about giving to the poor? No. Listen to John 12, 6. It says, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so before we even get to see Luke 22, we know the Gospels tell us that Judas was a thief. He was always about himself, and he was all about his wallet. And so with that in mind, let's read in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, there are two things that I want us to notice from this text. Number one, Judas seeks out the religious leaders to betray Jesus. You see that? He seeks them out. Judas is aware of the hatred that Jesus possesses, and he takes advantage of a potentially profitable situation. He departs from the twelve, and it says that he confers with the chief priests to betray the Son of God desirous of money. And number two, the second thing I want us to see, the religious leaders agree to give Judas money, so he consented. Now just put this together with me for a moment. 
Judas is the one who initiates the betrayal of Jesus with the chief priests. He heads out, and then he consents to betray Jesus in exchange for silver. And it's done. 30 shackles of silver in exchange for God. Judas steals from the money bag, right? We know that to be true, but even worse, the cravings of his heart for more led him to be willing to give up the Lord Jesus for a day's wage. He was a thief, not only externally, but internally, all the way a thief. And so Judas failed to keep God's law and willingly broke the eighth commandment. So the hearts of Jacob and Judas, they both display a desire to do whatever is necessary to take to provide more and more. It's a deep-rooted taker mentality, meaning they crave whatever serves them at the cost of life without any desire to give wholeheartedly for the good of others. They look to take matters into their own hands, to set up themselves for enjoyment and freedom from whatever they find in their hearts as holding them to the desire and love of money. And yet we find ourselves in no better of a predicament. In the late 1800s, John Rockefeller possessed 1% of the entire United States economy. And an interviewer one time asked him, John, how much money is enough? And John replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more money. You know, I think we are instinctively like Rockefeller. Just a little bit more. We're prone to adopt the taker mentality. I want to be fed rather than to feed. I want to possess rather than share. We look to take rather than give. What does this offer me rather than what can I do for the good of another? Now we can be really quick to think, at least I can be very quick to think, now wait just a second. I don't cheat on my taxes I don't take towels anymore from the hotel. I'm a good steward of company time. That's great. But what the Bible says is that there's no such thing as petty theft. No such thing. It's all serious. And at its root is the desire to be filled. To be a consumer. To take rather than give. So here's the question. Are we prone to chase wants? Are we prone to chase what is going to give me satisfaction now? Rather than to be generous, to chase opportunities to be poured out for the good of others. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that we should stop investing our money that we should stop investing our time and talents. No, we're called to be good stewards of the things that God has graciously given to us. But do you see the heart of the eighth commandment here? You can be the greatest saver. You can be the thriftiest person on the planet and still be a thief in your heart. Someone once said, you can possess your possessions or your possessions can most certainly possess you. You can possess your possessions 
or your possessions can most certainly possess you. How about us? What possesses us? What drives us? What stirs our affections this morning? Sadly, our natural bend is laced with a hunger to be inwardly appeased and entertained rather than outwardly generous with our time, talents, and resources. We fail to keep God's standard just like Israel. We fail. And so then how could we possibly be those who are able to faithfully keep God's law? How can we keep his law? How can we obey the Lord Well, first, we must look to Jesus. We must look to the Son of God because Jesus gives a vision in his life and by his death for a greater and lasting treasure that's found in him. He displays for us a life that's not harnessed by theft, but hungers for an imperishable inheritance that radically transforms our motives and our desires for God's glory. And so we need to look first at Jesus' life And so it's fulfilled in him. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And so in Matthew 10, Jesus has called his disciples, these sent ones, to not acquire goods, but to be poured out, to pursue generosity for the sake of the kingdom. But I want us to notice the introduction leading to Jesus' instruction that we're going to see starting in verse 5. So I want you just to hear the intro in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1. It says, And he, Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus gives his disciples kingdom power, the same power that Jesus has been demonstrating through his ministry. And he sends the twelve out to be the hands and feet to make him known. So what I want us to see is is right in verse 5. Listen to Jesus' instruction directly to these 12. It says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So the disciples are sent. They're to go to the Jews to preach the kingdom, heal, cleanse, cast out. And look what he says in verse 8. You received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or tunics, sandals, or staff. Do you notice what's happening here? Jesus is calling them to give generously of themselves and to not take a dime from these people. No acquisitions whatsoever. And so what's my point here? Well, notice that Jesus calls the disciples to what they've already seen and what he continues to do. There's no difference between these two ministries. He's given without taking anything. 
And so there's no theft involved. There's no payment here. There's no sin, only displaying grace. He heals, he proclaims, and he instructs without acquiring anything, but generously gives absolutely everything. And that's the exact model that the early church takes. That's what we hear of in Acts 20, 35. Paul actually says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So in Jesus' instruction to his disciples, we see the way that he demonstrated in his sinless life, giving rather than taking, giving rather than stealing, no theft, only generosity. This is what kingdom living looks like, and he calls his people to go forth and do it. It's Christ-exalting, others-oriented, generosity-laced ministry to the broken. Sinless in his life. Perfectly and faithfully keeps the law of God. And so Jesus' instruction to his disciples highlights this simple reality. The sinless son of God did not steal. He was not a taker. He was generous. He never stole. And not only that, but in Jesus' death, what we're going to see is that we see the greatest display of generosity ever imaginable. Jesus gives a greater treasure than we could ever steal, pillage, or falsify. He takes those that are thieves in heart and makes them into those who give as he has most wondrously given at the cost of his own life. And so I want us to see that together this morning in John 10. So turn to John 10, not too far from where we are. John chapter 10, and we will start in verse 7. John 10, starting in verse 7, it says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. (laughs) Now notice the contrast that we have here. right? You have thieves who have come in, you have robbers, and then you have this shepherd. And the thieves and the robbers, they're up to no good, right? They're thieves. They they steal. But the shepherd looks to love, doesn't he? Verse 7 tells us that Jesus is the door of the sheep. Verse 9 continues that if anyone enters by me, Jesus, the door, he will be saved. But what does verse 10 tell us? It gives us a massive contrast from the shepherd, the thief, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now just pause here for a moment. Who's the thief? It's Satan. That's what he does. 
He comes to steal the sheep, to kill and destroy the sheep. But notice that contrast, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't steal sheep and kill them. No, verses 10 through 11 continue and say, Jesus came that they, the sheep, may have life. That they would not experience death. That they would have life abundantly. That he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now don't miss this. Jesus came to give, not to steal. He's not like the evil one. Satan looks to steal and destroy. Not Jesus. No, Jesus looks to give and give of himself. Verse 18 adds, no one takes my life from me. That's what Jesus said. But what does he do? No one takes it. No one steals it. But I willingly lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly and generously gives up his own life for the sheep. And so the Lord Jesus, the sinless son of God, lived a perfect life, keeping every bit of the law of God, including theft, sinless. He was crucified on the cross, laying down his life in the place of sinners like you and me. He paid our debt. We sang that this morning. Praise the one who paid my debt, bearing the full wrath of God in the place of sinners and rose from the dead to make us alive in him, that we may live, that we might be freed from sin and judgment, that we might taste true generosity, that we might enjoy the harvest of his saving grace, the great treasure of your souls in his kingdom, that we'd enjoy the Lord Jesus, our all-satisfying treasure forever. He's the inheritance. He's the reward. That's what the thief can't offer you. He doesn't offer you that. The thief offers what? Death. And so hear this this morning. If you are not in Christ, your master is the one who only provides death. And look at Jesus. Look what he offers. He offers life. Spiritual, supernatural generosity on display for his people. And so those of you who have not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus, I'm here to tell you this morning that you can't sneak your way into heaven. That you can't buy your way in, you can't steal your way in, you can't even lie your way into heaven. No, God, this generous and abundantly rich God willingly gives himself that you would have life. And it's only through the death and resurrection of himself that you could be freed from the grips of the thief of souls and stand in the presence of the satisfier of souls forever. That's the joy of Christianity. It's not that we gain stuff here, but we gain God forever. That is glorious for us.
And so I pray that you would treasure the Lord Jesus rather than this world that you may live forever. And so Jesus reorients our vision to look not to store up things in the here and now, stealing and craving with the eyes of our hearts, but cause us to taste and see the generosity poured out among sinners. So by his wondrous work on the cross, he generously gives us something, doesn't he? Not only himself, but he gives us the spirit of God to be transformed, to be made new, to now by the power of the spirit to put the death theft in our hearts and lives and to pursue now with great confidence, generosity in the footsteps of our generous savior. And so here's the question. What exactly does that look like? How do I throw that off and walk in newness of life? Truly put to death theft in my heart? Well, we must put to death theft in our hearts and lives. In order to see it, praise God, Paul shows us how to do it. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I think this is the exact New Testament application from the Ten Commandments for us in the church. This is how we do it by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Hear this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now verse 25 begins here with the word, therefore, but what's the therefore therefore? Well, Paul writes that they, are, they have put away falsehood, right? And how could they possibly do that? Well, we need to look back at verse 24. Because they put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there it is. We put off falsehood because we're new in Christ. We're new creatures, and so the one who's put off falsehood puts to death theft. Cheating. Robbing banks. The pirating of music or movies. Plagiarism. Gambling. Embezzling. All of it. We put it to death. Why? Because we actually now can because we have been made new in Christ. One author says this. If we neglect to put to death theft, we fail to understand the glory of the new life to follow in Christ. Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as he now is. Nothing, not even what is lowest, will not be raised again if it submits to death. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too, too rank, but because they are too weak. Theft is a poor, weak whimpering, whispering thing compared with the richness and energy of desire which will rise when theft has been killed. 
So how do we practically kill theft internally and externally? I think one of the most helpful things for us is to soak in the word of God. To be people of the word. Allow the truths of the gospel and the person of Christ to transform our orientation to earthy treasures. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't enter. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now just look at that list. The thief, the swindler, doesn't enter the kingdom. But look at verse 11, and such were some of you. Some of us. Those in that list, most certainly. Those in some of that list, thieves, swindlers. But, I love that word. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. The one who was never a thief or a swindler. Oh, don't miss it. Do not miss it. If we are in Christ, then we've been washed. We've been sanctified and justified in Christ by the Spirit. Therefore, we have died to our thieving, swindling hearts. We don't place our hope, our fulfillment, our ambitions in our bank accounts or in our sneaky hands to bring us satisfaction. No, we look to the object of our faith, the one that our faith resides in, the object, the Lord Jesus We put it to death and we look at the scriptures and we taste and see the very fact that, oh my, Christ has charged us to put off this sin. Because this sin means death. But God gives us life and he's promised it and we are being changed. And so as we contemplate what God says about the swindler and the stealer, we must look internally. Where are we tempted to steal? Where have I been a thief in my heart? Where have I been robbing other people by not being generous, but looking out for just me? Being a taker. Being a taker in the church rather than loving and giving myself up for others. Am I a taker or a giver? Am I hoarding the good things God gives or am I willing to give them up? Am I a generous person? Am I generous? And so we not only rip out theft from our hearts and lives by the the spirit of God's work in us, but we then pursue generosity. That's what we do. We don't just sit on the couch after killing it and then we're done. No, we then are called to be working honestly and giving joyfully. Just look at Ephesians 4.28. It says, let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So rather than steal, what does Paul tell us? We work. We work honestly. I mean, what a helpful reminder for us. Sunday, right before we get back in the work week, we here at Proclamation, we are not anti-work. 
You may know that if you've been here. (laughs) Yeah, renovations and all, right? No, but whether you love your job or can't stand it, the Christian fights theft by working honestly, working humbly, working joyfully, remaining above reproach in every shape and form at work, spending your time wisely, making use of the time to work hard without laziness, without stealing time or resources. You see, Christians should be the greatest of bosses and the greatest of employees. Why? Because we've been called to not put in our time, punch in, punch out, and then get out of there. No, actually, 1 Corinthians 10.31 stirs our hearts. It tells us that the Christian does all, including work, to the glory of God. All of it. So as we assess our work, are we working hard for the glory of God at our nine to five job? Are there areas where we're looking to take shortcuts for our own convenience? How would you like to grow in working hard rather than entertaining thievery in your heart? And so in place of theft, Paul's clear We labor honestly, but not only that, but the outworking of our honest work to the glory of God is the purpose of our work. What is it? It's to give joyfully for the good of other people. That's why we're to work, according to Paul. Verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So just notice the purpose statement here. You work so that, boom, you give to others. And so that's not only just a purpose clause here, but that's a command for the Christian. We labor so that we have something to share with anyone in need. And so this is radically, this radically transforms the way we perceive why we work. Paul's clear. We work to love and care for the people of God. We must reshape, reorient our understanding of theft, work, and generosity. And so here's my question. What drives our desire to give joyfully rather than steal with our hands or with our hearts. What drives us? I think there are two reasons that I've thought through this past week. Reason number one, it's a demonstration of our abundance of joy in the gospel. Now, do you know that Jean Valjean never sold those candlesticks that the bishop generously gave him? No, in fact, he kept them as a reminder of the generosity that he experienced. He kept them his entire life. And in direct response to the generosity shown to him, he became a generous man, filled with deep compassion for weary, the weary rather than thievery. He put it off and he loved. Unfathomable generosity experienced spurs generosity towards other people. And that's what 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3 shows us about the Christian life. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you catch what drives the Macedonians and their giving? It's joy in the gospel. 
You see, one of the beautiful results of Christ's death is that it puts to death the faulty thinking that says, I need to have stuff or take stuff or manipulate situations to gain stuff in order to be happy. No, the gospel actually reorients our understanding of where true happiness is found. It's found in God. That's where the happiness, that's where the joy of the Christian resides. And so I want us not to neglect to remember this morning, brothers and sisters, that we deserved hell. That's what we deserved. And Christ came. And he died in our place. And he seated us in the presence of God forever with unlimited generosity for the saint. Which means that the call is not to just give up money for the sake of giving up money in the here and now. Or the giving up of our time. Or the giving up of our talents for the benefit of another. No, our giving is grounded in our treasuring of Jesus and nothing else. He is the motivation of our giving. Which leads me to my second reason. And that's this. We imitate our generous savior as we generously give to others. And so out of the overflow of our hearts, we give that we may imitate the Lord Jesus and pour forth generosity rather than theft. For when we are poured out with our hands open and our hearts free from theft, Christ's unwavering generosity shines like the sun through his people. And so this goes beyond just money. This goes our time. Our consideration, the mom at home generously giving her time to go and love and care and generously give herself to those who are single at home, who are just locked in. It goes to the people who have no money to generously give love and prayer to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? I don't want us to leave this morning and say, oh, I don't have any money to give, so I can't be generous. No, you can be creative and thoughtful in the ways in which you can be generous to love one another well. And so may we not forget that theft actually robs us of the opportunity to love one another well to actually pursue our brother and sister's greatest good and to magnify the Lord Jesus in the most mundane of ways. This is what the new life looks like. Empowered by Christ's overwhelming display of generosity transforms how we live. And so we now, by God's grace, no longer live to take, but we are those who now look to joyfully give ourselves for other people, for the good of others, and for the glory of Christ's name. Let's pray. Father, you are the generous giver of life and breath in all things. Lord, may we not be a people who forgets your kindness towards us, but that in light of your generosity, we would be the most generous people on the earth. That with our time, with our efforts, with our money, with our whole lives, that we would be poured out generous for the good of others and for the glory of your name. God, may we be people who love you and love the saints and that we would have every desire in the entire world be transformed and that we would see our brothers and sisters transformed in the image and likeness of God. 
And we pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.